There's a book that came out a few years ago called Hurt, and this is very sobering, um, what he starts with tonight. And I do want us to be sobered. I guess if you want to, to know like what I'm trying to do tonight, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get us to celebrate the good gift that sex is. But I'm also trying to get us to mourn the brokenness that sin has made of this good gift. And then I want us to begin to think about how we, as a Christian community, might find the strength and the power to live differently, not just for ourselves, but for the world around us that is desperate to know that Christianity makes a difference and that there really is a different way that you can live other than just living for yourself and your own desires. And the world desperately needs to know that. And I don't believe that the world will take the Christian answer very seriously at all if we don't demonstrate that there is a different way that we think and live with regard to sexuality. So this is a sober topic. It is a big topic. But again, it's also a joyful topic. But this, it's a difficult topic to talk about in our day and age. A friend of mine, Steve Garber, says, if you really want to understand whether somebody gets the gospel, whether it's begun to sink into their very being, the best test of that is has the gospel and what God has to say connected to what they do with their bodies. It's really the area of all areas in your life, for your whole life, the culture has told you you're free to do what you want, when you want, with who you want. It's basic to your identity as an American. And yet God comes and says about this area, no, I am Lord. And the degree to which um, you, Christ is Lord of your life in this area is really the degree to which you understand the gospel, is what Steve Garber would say. It's really where the rubber meets the road. So it's an important topic tonight. Listen to what Chap Clark says. Um, just a reading a couple of years ago. He goes, soon after I began this study, I became aware that the adolescent world is not as saturated with sex as it is infused with palpable loneliness. I was surprised to realize that for most mid-adolescents, he's talking about high school juniors and seniors who he's really writing about, the issue of sex has lost its mystique and has become almost commonplace. They've been conditioned to expect so much from sex and have been tainted by overexposure and the emptiness of valueless sexual banter and play that they have become laissez-faire in their attitudes and even jaded. As one student told me, sex is a game and a toy, nothing more. As I was to find out, it is also more than that. It is a temporary salve from the pain and loneliness resulting from abandonment. Massive shifts in thinking about sexuality have occurred in our culture over the past several decades. The definition of sex is now limited to the technicality of intercourse in the minds of most students. Holding an appreciation for sex as the wonder and mystery of the intersection of bodies, minds, and hearts is but a distant and rapidly fading memory. Will this generation be able to understand the power of love that gives sacredness to a physical act? As I listened to students talk about how they felt about love and romance and how these related to sexuality, I had difficulty finding any who could make the connection. The hope I carry is that the pendulum has swung as far as it can go in thinking about sex as a toy and that it will be brought back to the center by generations who have seen how devastatingly empty that world can be. I hope he's right. I hope he's right. We're going to talk tonight about the lies that we've been told about sex, both by the culture and, unfortunately, even by the church in some regards. 
And then we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about sex, in particular, the purpose of sex. What's it for? Because so often the Christian books that talk about it just seem merely content to try to figure out rules about what you can do and what you can't do without ever really talking about the big picture of purpose. And then we're going to talk um, a little bit about, well, a little bit about the implications of all that. But first, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. And I pray, Lord, as we enter into this topic, that we would be both sobered but also hopeful that you have not given up on your image bearers, that you have not given up on sex even as a way to teach us about your goodness. And we pray, Lord, that you would redeem and restore our understanding and our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are some of the lies that we've been told about sex from our culture and from the church? The first, I want to get right out of the way, is the one that we often get from the church. Whether the church means to say this or not, or whether it just is too afraid to talk to young people about sex in an honest way, for so many people, the, the degree to which they've been around church is the degree to which they think that sex is basically dirty. So often the church has a really difficult time saying what the Bible says is so clearly, which is that sex is a beautiful and good thing. Who wants to tell teenagers that <laughs> with raging hormones? Uh, so many people feel like, well, that's a little too dangerous. It's easier to keep people in check if you tell them that sex is not a good thing. But the fact is the Bible directly goes against that idea. One of the most important things that people need to understand about the church, both those in the church and those outside of the church, is that the Bible nowhere condemns sex as a bad thing. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy, which is the first passage we're going to look at, look at how strongly Paul says this. He calls this teaching that sex is not good and that certain foods are not good, he calls it a doctrine of demons. This is some of the strongest condemnation that you will find in the entire New Testament for false teaching. And yet it's not about legalism. It's not about the kinds of things that you may think it is. It's about people who teach that marriage is not good, which is a way of saying sex is not good. Here's what Paul says. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. That's strong. Yeah? They forbid, this is what they do. Here's what they're teaching that's so bad. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out, Paul's basically giving Timothy advice on being a minister. He says, if you point these things out to the brethren, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching you have followed. I don't know how he could say it any stronger. The people that were saying that it's more spiritual to not marry... And saying it's more spiritual to abstain from certain foods. Basically, the more miserable you are and the more you deny yourself pleasure, the more spiritual you are. Paul calls that a doctrine of demons taught by hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. That's strong. And yet so often, that's at least not maybe explicitly what's taught. At least what's implicitly taught by the church. We don't talk much about sex. You probably don't ever really hear sermons celebrating the goodness of sex. 
I remember um, years ago doing a wedding, and uh, the guy who had done the wedding had a very meticulous little schedule, kind of, you know, point by point, here's where you're supposed to be for me and the other pastor who's doing the wedding. And I remember he actually literally wrote uh, where it came to, you know, here's the order of the service and here's the sermon. And he deliberately, specifically wrote, Kevin, do not talk about sex. Did not want me to talk about sex at his marriage, at his wedding. (laughs) You know, this is, you know, okay, maybe he's going to be a little embarrassed. But the fact is, the Christian church should be able to say clearly that sex is a good thing. Because Paul makes it a really big deal. The Bible is pro-sex. That's the first and most important thing you have to get tonight. It's a doctrine of demons to teach that sex is bad. Or that God is somehow embarrassed when a married couple are naked and having sex together. God is not embarrassed by that. He doesn't turn his head. He thinks it's wonderful. He created it, right? God uh, does not blush when people who are married have sex. And, And, you know, it's interesting. The church has long been plagued by this idea that spirituality means that you will have no physical pleasure. St. Augustine, great St. Augustine, who taught so many wonderful things in this area, was really kind of messed up. He taught that sex was necessary to continue the race. At least he was better than the Quakers, you know, sorry, not the Quakers, the Shakers in that. The Shakers didn't believe you could have sex, right? That's why they eventually died out. Uh, but, the, but Augustine taught that sex was a necessary evil, that it was necessary to propagate the race, but any enjoyment that you got from it was sin, Right? And what's fascinating, a lot of people think the Puritans were anti-sex. They actually weren't at all. As a matter of fact, there was a church in New England that literally the wife went to the elders of the church and said, my husband is not having enough sex with me, and they disciplined him. Can you imagine a church today doing that sort of thing? No, because we have this crazy idea, which I'm going to address a little bit later, that sex is a private matter. I hope after we're done tonight you'll realize that that's not true. What we think about sex is definitely not a private matter. It's a community matter. Um, What's another lie? The first is sex is dirty. The second is this, that sex is just a biological function. The idea that, you know, just like when you're hungry, you eat. When you feel sexy, you've got to have sex. Uh, And it's just natural. And um, all it is is a physical thing. There's really nothing more to it than that. And the problem, really, in our culture, we have all these hang-ups from religious people who've tried to give sex more meaning than it really has. But it's just, a fun, it's just you know, something we do because we're animals, right? We're just like the other animals. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you look back on the page with the scriptures, has something to say about this. The Bible says, uh, no, that's not true. Sex is not just a biological function. There's something spiritual that's going on, like it or not. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Now that's from Genesis chapter 1, when God institutes marriage. And Paul says that, that, that always carries into sex. The two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God 
with your body. Now that's some, that's some bold stuff, particularly in Paul's day. Do you, do you understand that in Paul's day, in some of the mystery religions, going to church meant going to have sex with a prostitute who was provided free of charge there at the temple, okay? And the Corinthians were still kind of confused about this. Even though they'd become Christians, they were still um, participating in some of these practices. And Paul wants them to understand that, listen, this is not just sort of a little thing that can sort of be over here, kind of on the edge of your life. And, you know, okay, yes, I love Jesus. I have quiet times and, you know, I, I worship him. But, you know, I do this kind of thing over here. No, sex is integrated into the deepest possible way with who you are. Right? Paul says that, that when you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. It, it's, it can never be separated from who you are and your deepest um, being. And not only that, it's connected, if you're a Christian, to Jesus because you've been united by faith to him. So the, the Christian perspective is that sex is never just a biological function. And I think we all actually know that. I think we all know that. Because if you've ever had sex you know that it's different than eating. <laughs> it's different than eating. I don't know anybody that spends hours upon hours on the Internet looking at pictures of steaks and apple pie. Right? It's not the same thing. C.S. Lewis has a great uh, illustration about this where he talks about how you went to you know, this kind of village and you, you came upon this nightclub and you went inside and all the lights were turned down low and um, you know, there's a stage and there's a curtain and there's something behind the curtain, you don't know what it is, and then you hear the music, dum, 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 you know, and all of a sudden you know, the, uh, the curtain's pulled back and there's a cheeseburger and everybody in the crowd just goes nuts, screaming and hooting and hollering and you know, whistling and all this kind of stuff. And he said, if, if you came upon that scene, you would have to you would have to um, think that these people are absolutely starving or, or th there's just something else going on here. This is not a normal reaction to something that's just a biological function. It's deeper than that. And we all know that. We all know that. Sex is biological, but it's much more than that. What about another lie that we've been told? This is the idea that sex is a private matter. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court has even found there's a, a, you know, a right to privacy within the Constitution. Okay, go figure. Sex is a private matter. This is a very widespread idea. And I think it affects our ability as a Christian community to care for one another and to encourage one another to be more sexually faithful. Because we have this idea that what we do in the privacy of our own home is our own business. But this is absolutely, Tim Keller says, this is untrue from almost every perspective. The idea that what you do in your own home sexually is just a private matter that doesn't affect anybody else is not true uh, medically. <laughs> All kinds of things spread because of this idea that I'm going to do what I want with my body, with who I want. Diseases get spread. Medically, it's not true. Uh, economically, it's not true because there is a social and public health care cost to these decisions that people think they're making just on their own. Sociologically, it's not true. Absolutely, the shift in our culture from thinking about sex as a way to sustain and secure a marital relationship to thinking that sex is something that you do for personal pleasure has resulted in an absolutely devastating kinds of consequences for children. There's actually a study done a few years ago. You know, the people everywhere from Dartmouth University you know, Medical Center to uh, the YMCA commissioned this study. This was not a Christian study. Um, who found that there's absolutely no doubt that single 
child families are devastating for kids. We know that, right? And it has everything to do with the shift in our culture's idea about sex and what it's for. I'm not saying it's the only factor, but it's a huge factor. There is a huge social cost to pay for the idea that sex should happen outside of marriage. It's never a private matter. It has huge implications for our society, for our friendships, and you know it. Because if you're in a close-knit group of friends and two of them start having sex, it affects the whole group. It does. If your roommate starts having sex, it affects you. They might want to say, you know, we talked, some of the, the leadership team were telling me about the, the concept of sexile, you know, and having to, having to leave your dorm room because, you know, somebody's sleeping over and you don't want to be there, right? That's just a silly example, but it's never a private matter. It's never a private matter. Um, Wendell Berry has, has a great quote, which I, I think is, is helpful, I put on here. He says that sex is a nurturing discipline which uniquely creates joy, tenderness, and long-term unity between two people for the purpose of creating the very long-term, stable, nurturing households which are the only safe place for children to grow and flourish. Does that mean that if you didn't have that, that you're ruined and you could never have any hope of a, of a, of a good life? No, because God comes in and, and, and brings grace and healing into situations that are less than ideal. Everybody depends on that. Whether you grew up in what you would call a good family or not, you all have to depend on God's healing grace being able to redeem and restore. But the fact is, God created sex to be part of the cement that holds families together. And kids need that. Absolutely. Well, what about this, the next one, the next lie? Sex can be made safe. You hear all the time about safe sex. And it can be made free, free of consequences. But, of course, this is not true either. It's not true at all. Sex always comes with consequences. The fact is, God created sex as a way for us to say to another person, with our whole being, I belong to you. Now, I know that in our culture, we try to make it say other things. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in detail when I talk about the purpose of sex. But here's the thing. Is it any wonder that in a culture where so many people are using what God created to say, I belong to you, they're using it to say, yeah, I think you're kind of cool. <laughs> Is it any wonder that in a culture like that, we crave authenticity? Is there any wonder? Because one of, the, one of the ways that God has given us to say one of the most important things we could ever say, people are using to say something very different. They're using it to say something so much more shallow than what God made it for. And, and I think it's, it's directly linked to the way that we crave for somebody to actually be honest with us and say what they mean. Because sexuality is saying something, like it or not. Contrary to what the hookup culture wants to believe, sex can never be disconnected from bonding. It can never be something that you just do that doesn't have consequences. You know, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, some people these days, what's, what's fascinating is, you know, people are not only you know, deciding to have sex but to not have relationships. And this is the, the, the kind of the hookup culture. Is the idea that, okay, I don't want to be hassled by a relationship, you know, because being in a real relationship is, is really annoying and it, it robs me of my freedom. Um, it may actually interfere with my career plans, you know. I can't tell you how many people I talk to that are getting ready to graduate and they're in love but they're not sure they want to get married because they want to, you know, pursue their career. And I'm like, 
okay? You know, I, I mean, it creates this sort of weird thing where we feel like we want to have sex, but we can't be bothered by a relationship with all the entanglements and the difficulties and possible heartbreak. We can't be, dis, you know, dissuaded from our career. I mean, after all, from the moment you get to college, you're always told about what you need to do to build your resume and to meet the kind of people that will enable you to get a job. And it seems that relationships really get in the way of that. Well, they do. They do get in the way of that. But the Bible never said, he who finds a good job finds a good thing. The Bible does say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And in the Bible's way of thinking, a good thing is something you should seek after. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't work hard on your career, but I would seriously like to challenge putting your career and putting you know, all these other things that you think are so important above relationship. I want to challenge that. God still said, a man should marry his wife, be fruitful, and multiply. He still made that part of the call to human beings. Um, so sex can never be safe. It can never be free. The fact is, sex is a way of bonding. And, and the more that you use it to say something else, the more it actually ends up not working very much. In other words, if what sex is created to say is, I belong to you, and you're using it to say something else, after a while, you're not even sure what you're saying anymore. It, it really, it really kind of messes with with everything. Um, the fact is, um, you build up walls every time you give yourself away. You really do. And um, it, it's, uh, it's tragic, I think. Uh, there, you know, there's all kinds of studies to, to show that men who engage in premarital sex really never develop the kinds of intimate relationships that they should. Now, again, apart from God bringing healing and grace, and that's a real thing. But what I'm saying is, there's a connection. There's a connection with what you do with your bodies and your ability to bond and make committed relationships. So don't, it's, it's not something to mess around with. What's another lie? Porn can't hurt you. Porn can't hurt you, really? Um, I love this... Um, I love this quote. There's a lady, Naomi Wolf. Maybe some of you know her classic book, The Beauty Myth, about the oppressive power of our culture's idea of beauty. It's, very, it's a good book. Um, I think, actually, I've heard that she's recently become a Christian. She wasn't a Christian when she wrote that book. She wasn't a Christian when she wrote this article called The Porn Myth. But I think this is, this is great. And uh, so I put this little quote. Look at this. She says, uh, at a benefit the other night, I saw Andrea Dorkin the anti-porn activist most famous in the 80s for her conviction that opening the floodgates of pornography would lead men to see real women in sexually debased ways. If we did not limit pornography, she argued, before internet technology made that prospect a technical impossibility, most men would come to objectify women as they objectified, objectified porn stars and treat them accordingly. In a kind of domino theory, she predicted rape, and other kinds of sexual mayhem would surely follow. So, was she right or wrong? She was right about the warning, but wrong about the outcome. As she foretold, pornography did breach the dike that separated a marginal adult private pursuit from the mainstream public arena. The whole world post-internet did become pornographized. Uh, she quotes another guy who said that pornography has become the wallpaper of our world. Young men and women are indeed being taught what sex is, how it looks, what its etiquette and expectations are by pornographic training, and this is having a huge effect on how they interact. But the effect is not making men into raving beasts. 
On the contrary, the onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women and leading men to see fewer and fewer women as quote-unquote porn-worthy. Far from having to fend off porn-crazed young men, young women are worrying that as mere flesh and blood they can scarcely get, let alone hold, their attention. I think she's absolutely right. I think she's absolutely right. No real person can measure up. And, and, and while pornography may seem to be a private thing, something that doesn't matter, it actually has a huge effect on you. It has a huge effect uh, on somebody that you may be in a relationship with one day. It has a huge effect even on the way we relate to each other as men and women. We think about each other first in terms of what we look like rather than who we are. The Christian community should be not a place where that goes on. And yet it is. Because I know so many of you guys are looking at porn. I know it, right? And it's not just a male issue. And we think that the little dalliances are not, are not creating holes in our soul, but they really are. I remember uh, <coughs> years ago when I was in college, um, it was fascinating to me once a group of us uh, from the college group I was part of were at a baseball game. Orioles baseball game, we were walking through the parking lot, and you know how it is sometimes where the guys are kind of congregated together, and then the girls, there were probably about 10 of us guys, and then about 8 or 10 girls, and they were about 20 yards behind us, okay, we're kind of walking through the parking lot after the game, and this really cute girl walked by, and all the guys just kind of, you know, turned their heads and checked her out, and I remember this one girl, um, Patty, I'll never forget, she just ripped into us one side and up one side, down the other, she said, do you guys realize what that does to us? When we're trying so hard to believe what God says that we, our beauty should not be, you know, in what we look like or what we wear, but it should be in a meek and gentle spirit. God calls us to pursue that, and yet all the Christian guys we know could give a flip. Do you realize what an effect that has upon us, right? It's never just a private matter, right? It affects our whole community, it really does. And I don't know, but for me, like the older I get and the more I talk to students who are really could be my daughters, the more I just go, wow, do guys have any idea the pain that it causes women to, 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 to even walk you know, into the grocery store and see these magazine covers and these images of what they're supposed to be and to know that, that all the guys that they know that that's what they expect, right? Devastating for our relationships. It's a huge deal. Um, what's, what's another lie? Here's one. Sex equals love. I mean, think about even the lingo in our culture. What, what does it mean to make love, right? Sex equals love. The transformation has, has really been complete in our popular culture, and yet that's so far from the truth, Right? Now, I think, you know, um, I'm not going to say a lot about this, but I'm just going to say this. The Puritans used to marry in order to fall in love. Have you ever met somebody who's uh, been part of an arranged marriage? So we can't even imagine that. (laughs) Imagine that, you know, actually for most of human history and most cultures, that's the way people got married, and it really worked out pretty well. (laughs) It actually worked out better in some cases uh, than picking our own mates based on what they look like. And yet, for most of us, we can't even imagine that idea 
Why? Because we've so equated love with sex and romance and what people look like. Um, I, I think, you know, it's so interesting um, to think about, about this a little bit. You know, is it wrong? Was it wrong for the Puritans to marry in order to fall in love? Where we fall in love in order to get married, they married in order to fall in love. That's only like 300 years ago. And the question is not just, do you think that's wrong, what they did, but can you defend your preference biblically? I think you'd have a hard time defending your preference biblically. But after sort of, you know, the Enlightenment, after, you know, certainly Romanticism, it just feels crazy to us. And I think it's worth, worth thinking about. Um, here's another lie. Sex is what you were made for. As Belinda Carlisle told us, heaven is a place on earth, right? Um, you guys are too young to remember that song, aren't you? Now, the fact is, sex is a signpost. Sex is a signpost. Uh, but like all good gifts, it can become a powerful idol. See, sex is fundamentally about giving yourself away, saying, I belong to you. Even in marriage, you see, which is the only context for sex, your body is not your own. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, it's actually the second little uh, scripture from the bottom on the page I gave you. Paul says this, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. You know, this is fascinating. The Bible is very countercultural in this regard. Everybody in the first century thought that the wife's body belonged to the husband. But nobody, nobody would dream of saying that the husband's body belonged to the wife. That was incredibly countercultural. And yet it's not a new thing, actually, in the Bible's way of looking at things. Actually, in the Old Testament, do you know that Hebrew men who were newly married were told to stay home from war for one year for the wife's good, for her enjoyment and for her satisfaction. That's a really fascinating thing, isn't it? In, in a world that so often has treated women like property, the Bible has always spoken against that idea. And here Paul says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Like Paul's saying, look, even if you're a married couple and you decide you want to quit having sex, God says you can't. That's, that's pretty invasive, isn't it? Into an area that we think God shouldn't really be able to, to speak into. Or the church certainly speak in, shouldn't speak into. But Paul says, look, your body is not your own. You don't have a right to do with it what you want. He says, um, then come again together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you see what's going on here? Whereas the culture says that sex is what you were made for. Therefore, it's appropriate for you to try and get all that you can. And it's all about you and gratification. The Bible says, no, just the opposite. Sex, sex is about giving yourself away. It's about serving and honoring another person. It's not about you. It's not about you, and it's not about what you can get. Even ecstasy, sexual ecstasy, is not an end in itself. And this always blows people away, you know. If you're single, what is the verse that you wish was not in the Bible? You know? In, in heaven, we will not be married. Now, don't you all wish that you'll at least be able to get married and have sex before Jesus comes back again? <laughs> we can't dream of heaven being heaven if there's no sex. Because we don't like this idea 
that sex is not heaven itself, but it's not. Now, that's actually good news for you if you've had sex and it was good or it was not so good. It's good news to know that heaven is still better. It's good news for you if you never get married and never, biblically speaking, are to have sex, to know that you've not missed out on the best that life has. It's good to know that sex is not heaven. It's not what you were made for. And um, again, you know, you can idolize sex even if you're not having sex. If you think that it's what you need and if you had it, it would make you happy and make all your problems go away, well, then you've made an idol out of it as well, even if you're not having sex. So sex is what you made for is a lie. Getting what you can get is a lie. Now, in opposition to all these lies, what, what does the church do? The church tends to, in its place of all these lies, say, well, here's what you need to do, and to, to put out these rules. Now, look at Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Paul talks about um, rules, and he says this, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul says rules don't keep you from sensual indulgence. In some ways, they may even make it worse. Back over in Romans chapter 7, Paul said, I never knew what coveting was until the law said, do not covet, and then I wanted to covet right? The commandment gave life to sin within me. It sprang to life, okay? Here's, here's the thing. Rules, rules do not have any value, do not have any value for restraining sensual indulgence. Now, you can find some wisdom kind of rules in the Bible, but what the Bible really wants to focus on is the purpose of sex, and what's so tragic is you can read all these different books written for teenagers on sex and dating and what you're supposed to do, and people are always want to know, well, what's the line? Which is basically a way of saying, how close can I get to the line without going over it? Rather than saying, what is sexual intimacy for? I mean, if you ask me, should I be kissing on somebody? I would say, well, what's the point of kissing? What, what are you doing? What is sexual intimacy in that form supposed to be about? If sexual intimacy was given to you as a way of saying, I belong to you, at what point is it appropriate to say that with your body? That's the way you should think about it instead of, just tell me, should I kiss or not? Now, I don't want to answer it that way because that's not the way the Bible wants to answer it. The Bible wants you to think in terms of what you were made for. And so let's look at that. Because to deal Christianly with this topic, we have to talk about what is the purpose of sex. And the Bible says the purpose is threefold. And I know, you know, I've got to move fast, and I so I will. The first is procreation. The Bible does say that one of the purposes of sex is that children come out of this, right? And that's a pretty mind-blowing thing, you know, that what you can do with another person can bring another life into the world is, is pretty awe-inspiring and humbling, okay? But unfortunately, the Catholic Church has taught that this is the only purpose for sex. This is why the Catholic Church opposes birth control, because they would say that it ends up undermining the purpose of sex. But if you search the scriptures, you find that procreation is not the only purpose of sex. Sex is also a good thing. It's fun. It's enjoyable. And sex as recreation is fully embraced by the Bible. God made it to be fun on purpose. Just like he didn't have to give you taste buds. 
He didn't have to create a world with the variety of color and um, smells and sounds. And I know the evolutionary biologists think they have explanations for all these things, but it's bunk. It really is. God is a creative God, and he created a world for us to enjoy, to enjoy. And sex is that way as well. God did not have to make it so pleasurable. He didn't. And you might say, well, then we would never have, you know, babies and we could never, you know, keep doing this if it wasn't pleasurable. Come on. God made it be one of the most pleasurable things you'll ever experience this side of heaven. He enjoys when you find great pleasure in his creation. Sex is fun. The Song of Solomon, it's in the Bible. I know a lot of Christians have been embarrassed by it. and They've tried to turn it into a mere allegory about Christ and the church. But it's first and foremost a love poem. And it's actually pretty graphic on the kinds of things that are exciting and enjoyable. And it's in the Bible. Okay? It's in the Bible. All right. But it's also, it's also about bonding. Sex is covenant cement. And, and this is, I think, so important to understand. Uh, a couple quotes here. Larry Richards uh, says this, God didn't create sex to show affection. He invented it to seal commitment. Tim Keller says, it's a way of cementing and enabling relationships of complete oneness. It's God's appointed way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And you know that if you've ever had sex because you felt married. Until you try to convince yourself that you weren't. Um, Marriage is a covenant. And sex in marriage is a covenant renewal ceremony where you say, I belong to you, you belong to me. I'm completely yours. There actually are two words in Hebrew for sex. And the Bible uses the word yada, which means to know, as in Adam knew Eve and she brought forth a child. It uses that word to know for a very important reason. Because sex is a way of becoming intimate, not just physically, but in every way with another person. Sex is about oneness, not just physical oneness. And that's why, if you ever end up having to do marital counseling, most sexual problems in marriage are really communication problems. And relationship problems. Sexual problems are never really the problem. Because sex is always connected to this other stuff. God goes, like I say, even so far to tell married couples that they can't decide, even if they both agree, to quit having sex. Because it's one of the ways that he's given for them to say to one another, even if I don't like you right now, I'm committed to you. And you're committed to me. Now that's a challenging thing. Because what God is saying is, This is not just yours to do with what you want. But, of course, he says that about everything in life, doesn't he? And this is what shows us, I think, the big problem with sex outside of marriage is it violates the intrinsic meaning of sex. Uh, My uh, ethics professor in seminary put it this way. The problem with sex outside of marriage is that it performs a life-uniting act without a life-uniting intent, and thus you violate the intrinsic meaning of the sex act. I mean, you say, you're saying by having sex, I'm completely yours, but if that's not what you mean, what you're really saying is, uh, I don't love you enough to marry you, because if I marry you, I put myself at your mercy, and what's wrong in your life becomes wrong in my life. I'm not in for that. I'm not really yours. But I'm still going to do this thing that's a way of saying I'm yours, right? You see the problem with that? No wonder we want sex without uh, consequences. And no wonder we worship condoms, which seem to promise that, and the birth control pill, which seem to promise sex without consequences. But, of course, it's not true. How do we use sex? Um, 
you know, these, these are all quick little things I can hit on. The first is this. Sex can be misused even in marriage. You can still use sex to gratify yourself even in marriage. Just because you're married doesn't mean that anything you want to do sexually is now appropriate. Sex is still about committing yourself to another person, right? Um, even if both couples are using, both people in the couple are using each other, it's still wrong. God still says, I'm in charge of what sex should be about. Couples, I think, often use sex as a shortcut to intimacy when they can't communicate any other way. And you see this all the time, uh, why sometimes if you're dating somebody or you're hanging out with somebody, and sometimes you know being alone is enough for you to want to have sex, but sometimes the temptation is strongest when you feel like you're not communicating well because it feels like a shortcut to intimacy when we can't talk. Um, and, and I think that that's true. I think some people use it that way. Um, some people try to use sex to end the ache of loneliness. Marva Dawn talks about how we have just this huge longing and emptiness and longing for intimacy, and we try to use sex to fill that, but it ends up just backfiring and make us feel even more lonely and more ashamed. Um, some people use sex to feel alive or to feel in control. This is what goes on in sexual addiction. This is what goes on in use of pornography. Um, whether it's, you know, hardcore pornography or romance novels. It's all sort of putting different ideas out there than what God says sex is to be about. And all of it is really about a flight from real intimacy into the kind of fantasy world where intimacy is controlled by you. See, one of the great glories of sex is that you're not in control. It's one of the things that makes it so wonderful and beautiful. But always in the fantasy life, always in pornography, always part of what the draw is that it seems like I'm in control and that's the way it can be. And it's just this kind of intimacy. It promised intimacy without risk. I can be intimate, but yet I don't have to be vulnerable. And that's not the way God made it. Those two things go together, like it or not. What about masturbation? Should we say something about that? I always like to say that word and look around and see everybody like looking down at their paper. Okay, look. Again, like, I, you know, a couple years ago, Youth Worker Journal which is kind of the professional magazine for people that are youth ministers. Uh, there was an article in there where this, this minister, I won't tell you what denomination, argued that masturbation was okay. And it was okay as long as people weren't using pornography um, as a sexual release and whatnot. And maybe you've heard this sort of thing. Um, but again, what was fascinating is this article, actually they got so many letters to the editor that they devoted the whole next issue uh, to the whole issue of masturbation, you know, with all different viewpoints. And it was very interesting to read all these letters. But what was so often missing from these letters and what was missing from that original article was there was no discussion in the question of masturbation about what the point of sex was. And if the point of sexuality is about bonding, that has implications for the way you think about masturbation. Because it's, you're, you're basically saying that something that should connect you to another person, you're now doing to not connect to another person. And you're, in a, in a way, training your body that sex is not for bonding. Sex is merely for pleasure and for self-gratification. That has implications. Now, can I point to one verse that says masturbation is wrong? No. But I think the way to think about it is to think in terms of the purpose of sexuality, and I would be hard-pressed to encourage it. Um, what, what else would I say? Well, let me just say a couple last things here. What about you? I'm jumping down to what about you. This is where the rubber meets the road. And I do want you to think in terms of what am I doing with my body? What am I doing sexually? What does it mean for me to honor God with my body? I do want you to cry out, Lord, help. But I also want you to understand this. 
that the, the healing and the forgiveness of the gospel is bigger than you think. And it's big enough for anything that you've done. Absolutely. Listen, the Bible says that if you're, if you're a Christian, you should understand that it's your sin that put Jesus on the cross. So you're already somebody who's implicated in the murder of the innocent son of God. And he forgave you. There's nothing that you can do that's bigger than that. Nothing. Nothing. If Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, then there is nothing that you're going to do that is, oh, sorry, that you just, you just sort of went over the line, buddy. Uh, can't forgive that one. No, no. If you've misused sex, brothers and sisters, who hasn't misused sex? There is real healing. There's no sin that's beyond the grace of God. If you're struggling with addictive sexual stuff, talk to somebody. Get help. This stuff really flourishes in the darkness. Because so much of it produces shame and is driven by shame. And it's this vicious cycle. And uh, talk to me. Talk to Sneva. Talk to Wendy. Get somebody to, to pray for you and to help you, right? There, there are things that we can do that can help. Four suggestions as we move forward. The first is celebrate the good gift of sex. Don't walk out of here just feeling like, Ugh. walk out of here saying, look, sex is an awesome thing. And no matter how I've misused it, it's still a good gift. And it's a good gift that God, um, as, far as, as far as I think, you know, unless you're called to singleness, and I don't think any of you should conclude that yet at this stage in your life, then um, it's something that you should expect to enjoy one day. And uh, I, I think you need to celebrate that. You need to look forward to that. You need to not try to convince yourself. It's a weird thing, you see, for a lot of Christian couples, like all their life they're telling themselves, I can't do this, I can't do this, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Then they do a wedding ceremony and they walk out and now they're supposed to be like, oh, this is a beautiful, wonderful thing. <laughs> and it's a weird thing. Don't tell yourself, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. It's not. It's beautiful and it's good. Celebrate the goodness of sex. Second, mourn the brokenness that sin has made of this good gift in your life and the lives of others. Own it before God. Journal about this. Say, Lord, here's the areas where I've, I've misused and where I've been broken. Here's the, here's the areas where I mourn when I look at my world and I look at my friends and I look at my family and I see the way sin has made a mess of this. And Lord, let me just weep before you over that. We need more Christians that rather than their first response to the misuse of sex in our culture being condemnation, their first response being weeping would be a really wonderful thing. If we could weep more for the sexual brokenness of our world, it would, it would be so, so wonderful. Maybe we can start. Third, receive the forgiveness offered in the gospel. Here's one of my favorite verses in thinking about this. In Isaiah 54, it says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. This means that what God promises to give you in relationship is not just forgiveness and to accept you as a friend, but he says that your maker is your husband. I, I mean, that's an unbelievable... It's hard to even get your imagination around that, that the one who created you wants to marry himself to you and give himself to you totally. It's so amazing, not just that the Bible tells us to give ourselves to God, but that the Bible promises everywhere God has given himself to his people. 
There are places where the Bible talks about how we are his inheritance, but what's so really astounding is when the Bible talks about how God is our inheritance and that he's given himself to us. That's the heart of the covenant. I will be your God. You be my people. I've given myself to you. I've pledged myself to you. Your maker is your husband. Relationship with God is supposed to connect even to your longing to be known and loved in the deepest part of your soul. God did not look at human beings and say, oh, they have this quaint custom of getting married. I think I can use that as an analogy to teach them about me. No, he created human marriage so that you would begin to understand something about the way he loves. Fourth, cry out for the kingdom to come in this area, in our community, and in the world around us. Because the church has got to demonstrate that the gospel changes the way we think about and use sex. And it has to begin with us. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I I think it would start with us mourning and weeping. And then beginning to say, Lord, give us courage. How can the gospel help fulfill me in a way that I don't think I have to have sex to fulfill all of my longings? What would that look like? I hope that we can dream and talk about that together. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this astonishing promise that you, our maker, are also our husband. That you don't just make us and tell us what to do. You give yourself to us. That you woo us. That you comfort us. That you pledge yourself to us. Lord, may we, may we relish that image. May that that truth sink down into the deepest broken places in our soul and may it give us hope. Lord, no matter what we may think about ourselves, you are so thrilled to marry yourself to us and that you're more excited about coming back again to be with your bride than we can imagine. All we can see is how dirty we are, but Lord, you look at us as the spotless bride that you've washed clean in your blood, and you can't wait to be united to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help even in us whet our appetite and stir up our longings so that no lesser longings would ever satisfy us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.